Can't think of anything else. I have two cat. I have two cats in here with me. Hopefully, they choose to remain. Well, you'll probably hear our you know dogs at some point during the show. Ah, they like yes. to make themselves known. It's so. A recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Cool. Sam, are you good on your end? I'm good. Let's go. Okay. You want me to count down? No, but you do. <laughs> I don't. So I don't. So you may know Roshan that we've talked about this before. Like usually, like we record the show, and I never go back and listen to the shows. Uh huh. And so for a long time, Sam was including my countdowns at the start of the show, and, and I didn't know things. it. <laughs> and all, all, all kinds of stuff. And I was, and I decided to listen back to one show for some reason. And I was like, wait, what? How long have you been doing this? <laughs> and he was like, I've been doing it for months. I didn't know. You see how long it took you to notice. So. Well, see, that's why you got to get someone to write a theme song for you guys. So I know countdown, I know. you could just put the theme song on. Yeah, we we've been talking about that. We we found a guy who's going to do a voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, us a pitch. It was great. I'm joking, uh, yeah, and it was you know this man, is uh, thinking religion, right? Like, how do you make a theme song for this? Um, but yeah, so you know, I, I was thinking. I I mean, I can play the guitar, so I thought maybe I would just jam. Yeah do some g chords and the stuff that i used to do in college to make the make the lady swoon right well a lot of the podcasts i listen to have some uh theme songs that's really just guitar riffs or one has just a great bass line going yeah like like seinfeld you know like it's the bass line that makes you want to get up and dance yeah do air basing right so i like that we're kind of jarring and that we don't have an opening and all of a sudden, like you hit the the play button, and it's like, whoa! <laughs> and sometimes in the middle of a conversation. Yes, yes. Yeah, a lot of times. <laughs> it's kind of our stick. I don't know. We, we might we might do a theme song if, if someone writes us a great song. We can do that, but we'll see. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. I'm Sam Harrelson. And we have a special guest on the show with us this week. Uh, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know, that's horrible. That, that's not how it works on podcasts. No, no, no. I'm Jeez. Batman. And... But there's a big get. We're super excited. <laughs> I mean, that, no, Batman vs. Superman wasn't that good, but we're really looking forward to Justice League. Like, that's going to be a great movie. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> anyway. Thank you, uh, Flick. You're, you're welcome. Uh, no, so I'm Roshan Abraham. Uh, I'm formerly of Washington University in St. Louis, was an uh, assistant professor of classics and religious studies. Um, my family, my family, my wife and I decided after seven years of being in St. Louis that we want to move and be close to our family. All of our siblings live here in the D.C. area, so it's just been a little over a month that we've been in Arlington, Virginia. And... Yeah, so I, I, I committed, you know, uh, a great academic sin by leaving a tenure-track job for absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. yeah. <clears throat> I'm sure plenty of people are pissed at me, or but everyone, everyone's actually been incredibly supportive. So it, that's the the transition was great uh, in terms of just leaving, just you know, on my path, you know having my back about that so yeah so it, good. if you don't make, mind me asking like so you're in arlington now what else i mean like what are you 
not what are you doing with your life, but <laughs> you were in tenure track and now you're not like, are, are you looking yes. for positions or like, what's your, what's your game plan? Okay. So we've been here for just a little over a month. Um, my wife, uh, who's a wonderful woman, uh, has endowed a one year sabbatical for me. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a, I'm on a, a sabbatical leave funded by the shock at paycheck. <laughs> <That's> my wife. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, I you know it's, I guess it's the question a lot of PhDs have to face this, these days. I mean, there are no jobs there, right? You know, the jobs are so right. involved. Uh, you might as well put the likelihood of getting a job at at like, you know, 1% with the number of PhDs. Um, well, especially with classics and religious studies. I mean, like you, you definitely double majored in the in the two. <laughs> so I have two high profile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have I have a, a a double issue with that. That my PhD is in classical studies, um, and I got the position at WashU, and I was you know thrilled and overjoyed about it because it, it was it was the position I really wanted the year. I was on the market because it was home-based in classics, but jointly appointed with religious studies. And during my dissertation, I got very, very interested in religious studies. Um, I, I did my dissertation on Apollonius of Tiana. Oh, wow. And, okay. Well, yeah. those are, okay. Let's talk about that. We, we were like, what are we going <laughs> to talk about? Let's, let's, <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, uh, and, Apollonius of Tiana brought me to early Christianity. So I, I think most people figure out about, learn about Apollonius of Tiana because they were studying gospels or early Christianity. Right. Uh, In a New Testament course. Yeah. Right. Exactly. exactly. Or they, they read a Bart Amron book. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, or Reza, I think Reza Aslan mentioned. Oh yeah, that's Christian. right. Yeah. I think he does. Yeah. And, he does. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and then they're like, Oh, that guy. Right. You know, I, I actually, I read Apollonius of Tiana because I was originally interested in uh, Greek writings on India. And for you know any of your listeners who don't aren't deeply deeply familiar with Apollonius of Tiana, which you know I'm sure there's just like one or two, um, the outliers. <laughs> so Apollonius uh, goes to India, studies with Brahmins, comes back to Greece, and. I was my dad was a minister, so I was raised uh, in the church. You know, uh, I, I knew my gospels about as well as anyone who goes to church and falls asleep during the sermon does. <laughs> what what, oh, what, uh, what, what denomination or, or group? He was, yeah, he was a minister for the Church of the Brethren. Oh uh, wow! Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Weird, weird story behind that too. But uh, that, and that's the that's the church I grew up with. And when I was a child and growing up in the church, the church was incredibly liberal. I mean, it was yeah, it was yeah. kind of a lot of old school Democrats. And like everyone was, it was like an old school, you know, like FDR Democrat. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I, when I was reading Life of Babylonians, I was like, my God, this reads just like a gospel. And some for some reason. Other people had noticed that too. It wasn't just me, <laughs> right? So for uh, like two hundred years, people were talking about that. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe longer. Yeah. No, well, I mean, since the third century, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Fourth century. Uh, 
Yeah, and I was really lucky because the year I started my dissertation was the year Annette Reed uh, started at Penn, and and she made a great a grave error in one of her first talks uh, about mentioning Apollonius of Tiana in her talk on the pseudo Clementines, and Ooh. so religious studies happened to be down the hall from classics, so I just went down the hall and knocked on her door and never stopped bothering her. <laughs> <laughs> We became we became very good friends, and right. she pretty much she pretty much gave me my initial religious studies education. So the job at WashU was just this beautiful opportunity to really continue my religious studies education uh, while you know being a classicist, and I was able to do that. And now I think seven years at WashU, I, I I feel like you know my disciplinary home would be religious studies even though my degree is in classics. So what, yeah. to, to a roundabout way to, to saying that, I have this double issue where most classics jobs would look at my CV and I see the stuff I've done with religious studies and you know, be like, oh, is he really a classicist? And most religious studies jobs would go, wait a minute, he has a PhD in classics. <laughs> and and, and he's, he's published in classical journal. Is he really religious studies? Yep. <laughs> so I, I'm, uh, I shot myself in the foot there, but I couldn't be happier for like everything I've gotten to do in religious studies, including, you know, things like getting to meet Thomas at, uh, at NAPS. At NAPS this year. I know we yeah. met in Chicago, um, which was, which was great. So yeah, and that was kind of funny because, like, we I don't know, like, got to know each other on Twitter, and you found the show right before you ever uh, knew anything about me, I guess. And then mm-hmm. we started following each other on Twitter, and then it was like, oh yeah, you're gonna be in Chicago for naps, and I am too. So you know, got yeah. together and you know had a drink, or as you do. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, so it's 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 really interesting because right, my PhD is in uh, religions of Western antiquity, and so we do early Christianity, we do Judaism, and we do Greco-Roman religions, uh-huh. and it's not quite as complicated as your situation, but it is kind of similar in that I feel you know like I, I would apply for some classics jobs, and I did right. because oh hey, you're classics, but you're interested in religion. Hey, I can I can do that. Because, <laughs> I can be Latin. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, kind of it, there is that interesting thing there. And then, of course, with the religious studies jobs, the stuff I do in religious studies tends toward late antiquity, right. which is big. It's huge in kind of the scholarship of right. religious studies, but it's not huge in the like positions and the yeah. teaching. Yeah, so people, there's not very many positions there. And what are, yes, I can teach new Testament. I've taught it a lot, but yeah. I don't have a new Testament dissertation. So how do I explain to them? Like, yes, I can do. So yeah, it's, there are kind of studying the things that are really interesting to you mm-hmm. are great. It's great, but it doesn't always you know, provide the paycheck that you want it to. Yeah. It's, it's why. Oh, go ahead, Sam. I was going to say, it's, it's so fascinating to me because I went to a liberal arts small college here in South Carolina called Wofford College. And it was, it was a Methodist school. And I was, I was a chemistry computer science major. I stumbled into a religion class because I had to take one. Fell in love with it. Changed my major that day to religion. And I still took a lot of chemistry and computer science stuff. And now I run a marketing agency. And for me, like hearing the two of you talk about this is just mind-blowing because to me, like – 
classics and religious studies are, you know, basically in the same cloud. <laughs> and, you know, when, when I hear people say like, well, you know, I, I was I was doing, uh, you know, Eastern Mediterranean religion, but this job's Western Mediterranean religion, and I didn't really study, you know, the Iberian Peninsula and whatever. It's like, well, really? Like, there's that much of an economy of, of study? Or, you know, that that's 5th century, and I studied 3rd century, and, you know, I didn't get into the Byzantine period, so I can't really go that far, but I can tell you all about, you know, the, the Imperial Roman period. Um, well, I think I think the difference really is, when you're in the PhD program, you're you're pushed and encouraged to do new work. So, right. you know, the new work is in uh, things that are in later antiquity, things that people don't read that much, things that have gone unnoticed. But when you go on the job market, everyone wants a biblical studies person, right? Yeah, right. or something so. that's been studied. Like I love Dory Ropus over in Syria. Yeah, on the Euphrates, yeah. and and when I was uh, when I went to Yale for my MDiv slash, I was in the PhD program, and then got talked out of it because of a girl. But we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> my my whole thing was like I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be the 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 Howard Carter of Dury Europus, and it, you know, I'm going to break it wide open. It's going to be like the Pompey of the East, and it's going to be awesome. And now I realize like how presumptive and you know Western and all that you know yeah. my thinking at the time is, but. Um, yeah, you, you know, it, it kind of makes you feel like you constantly have to discover something new. It's like, oh, well, you know, it, I, I figured out this one little line in Job that talks about this and that right. clearly talks about the homosexuality elements right. of this or, you know, Jonah's presumptive bisexuality or, or this concept of, uh, you know, whatever in Jesus where he's, you know, doing this and, and it, it's this new insight into this thing. Right. And, I really hope your next book, by the way, is called Jonah's Presumptive Bisexuality. <laughs> you know, honestly, my, my first... I would read it. Oh, I, one of my first classes at Yale was uh, with a uh, a fantastic professor. I'll send you a link off, offline. And, and we we talked about... The whole class was about the uh, the, the sexual narratives of Jonah. And I, I've got all the text still. And it, it's fantastic. And I go back and you know kind of pour through that uh syllabus every now and then and in the big readings because i was like well, really jonah was what homosexuality like i i didn't pick up on that and you know re- looking back it's like wow that was pretty cool to be studying that in 2001 2002 but all that to say it, it's it's fascinating to me that yeah both of you especially um not struggle but you know have to have to deal with this sort of concept of of not, not doing Indiana Jones type work and coming up with something new and you know pulling a an Incan artifact out of the ground, but you know it, it's like we really haven't progressed to the point where we say okay, well scholarship, you know, is something that we need to support as a, as a culture. And if someone has a, if someone has a PhD, then you know perhaps we as a culture need to say, please go study that, go lock yourself into the archives of some place and, <laughs> and do this work because we need more people that do that i don't know i've heard you know there are some places and i I've only can think of one example off the top of my head where they have created teaching track positions and research right. track positions i don't think i mean it'd be phenomenal if that picked up um i mean we're, we're just getting into the huge issue of the way universities are run the importance of numbers ranking you know, you get ranked with top scholars in the field, uh, and you for to have top scholars, you have to have people doing new stuff. 
but then you have everywhere else where you know you just need someone to teach biblical literature, biblical studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I was just gonna say, I had a little yeah. bit of a, of a time as a middle school teacher, and <laughs> we were teaching an allegory, and I had a picture of Jonah and the whale, and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. so you know who's this? And this is in North Carolina, and you know I just yeah. kind of presumed everyone would know, like there's a big fish whale spitting human out like you know human had a white beard clearly it was something old you know whatever and the kids are like uh noah (laughs) and and none of the 80 kids got it and i was like wait you don't you know not that you don't know the bible but it was like wow like there's that cultural kind of distance between what we all assumed people knew and what people know now well you'd expect that they would know jonah from like sunday school songs you know Yeah. yeah right Right. So, but yeah, there, there is there is a a big gap there, and you know that's why everyone. I mean, like religious education just needs to be more prevalent. But you know, I don't. I, we don't hear a lot about you know religious studies departments growing or universities and colleges starting. Right. Up right. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I think we're going to get back. Like the pendulum's going to swing the other way eventually. And yeah, we're going to get back. We're going to get back to you know classics. And I mean, looking back on the early 20th century, you know, the the, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the the sort of you know underpinnings of society in terms of you know robber barons, but <laughs> in terms of you know people who were were learned and leaders and all that stuff, they for the most part had liberal arts educations where they understood latin and they understood the bigger concepts and they studied aristotle you know and now we look at our current political landscape where you know a presumptive <laughs> political nominee for our presidency uh you know clearly has never read anything close to aristotle and it's you know to me it's kind of maddening to to try to wrap you know our current yeah. culture around that aristotle's not winning anymore Stop right, exactly. Well, apparently, he t- apparently there was a study <laughs> about like at what level do- uh, he who shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> ta- speaks and he speaks at a fourth grade level, and which totally completely makes sense when you listen to him. You know, it's, it's the most simplistic sentences with yeah. about yeah. four adjectives he uses, like terrific, tremendous, great. Yeah, big. Yeah. We're gonna win. We're gonna win, big. and we're gonna win big, right? All right. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, I think there's an, another interesting thing, and maybe you can speak to this um, a little bit better because you kind of you know were housed in a classics departments mm-hmm. for a long time, Roshan. Um, but it seems to me, in the forays that I've had into classics and. At Florida State, we have a great relationship between the religion department and the classics department, and particularly in the religions of Western antiquity track. Right, right. Um, yeah, a good but, friend of mine's in there. Yeah, but so largely kind of Christianity doesn't exist for most classic scholars, right? It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, there's people. It's just the hoi polloi. Right. And, but we're going to talk about like the, you know, the people that matter, right? The, the you know, male elites, basically. Um and so I think that's that's another interesting thing that while kind of on the outside, it may look like, oh, yeah, these are a natural fit. The way mm-hmm. the disciplines have evolved, right. there there is still a barrier. And I don't think it should be there. I know you don't think it should be there. But yeah, there is but- still a barrier between, say, classics and religious studies. And then the the other thing 
you were talking about kind of having you feel like your kind of methodological home now would be religious studies. I think we've seen a lot of advances in methodology and theory in religious studies, right? Because we're kind of probably right behind um, English or, you know, literature, you know, literary studies um, in kind of making these theoretical advances and classics just has not, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not really, at least a lot of what I've seen and read right. pushing yeah. the envelope on the theory aspect. Well, I mean, even like even when, when I started graduate school, I mean, the kind of general belief was classics tends to be 10 years behind on theory. Um, right. And I mean, if, if you think about like, you know, the, the, the strength of a discipline, particularly in the humanities, comes, you could kind of gauge it by like, you know, what theoretical interventions are happening in the discipline? You know, where is theory being developed? Um and classics hasn't really done anything, as far as I can think of off the top of my head, since uh, Lord Ben Perry's work on uh, oral traditions. Right. Uh, and, and you see, I mean, religious studies is, I would put it, you know, right, I mean, pr- partly because of the close ties with anthropology in its early years. I mean, religious studies is always, I think, right, right up there with anthropology in terms of... Uh, theorizing humanity yeah that's good i like that That, that's a good point yeah yeah um no i I think that's i think that's right um well and and, and you think about some of some of the uh connections between things like i I mean not i'm I'm not i i can't speak for, for the general religious studies field but when i when i you know as an outsider and someone who's still tries to read, read up on classics and tries to read up on religious studies and tries to read up on anthropology, you know, religious studies and anthropology seems much more not willing, but able to be flexible to things like, you know, gender studies and, you know, wrapping themselves around the idea of, uh, you know, narrative studies, whereas classics, you know, you have this very strong contingent who says, no, no, the Western tradition is, is the tradition and, you know, you, you get the Victor Davis Hanson kind of, you know, who killed Homer type yeah. mindset. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and, and no, I'm I mean, speaking as an outsider, but, you know, that yeah. it, it feels like that's kind of the, kind well, of the I divide. Mean, I think like Victor David Hanson and that ilk is the public face of classics right now. Yeah. Uh, right, but you, you right. have, to, I mean, you have to give them, give credit where credit's due because there have been plenty of people who have been pushing the envelope in classics. Yeah, totally. totally uh, right. Now, particularly, I mean, now I think ancient medicine is becoming right. a real uh, interesting and uh, kind of, it's kind of the new cutting edge of classics. I mean, if, if for no reason other than, you know, you get the science medicine connection and universities love science, obviously. Right. Uh, but yeah, you know, the, yeah, there is the, you know, classics is Plato, Homer and the tragedians view of classics. Right. Um, and yeah. that, I mean, I, I definitely face that frequently, um, in my, my own experience. Um, but yeah, you know, but on the other hand, you know, what the stuff like Thomas and I do in religious, in, in religious studies with a, the late antique religion people are kind of a separate breed from the yeah. New Testament. I, I think that's true. Yeah. 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 Biblical. Definitely. Yeah. 
And and for all intents and purposes, you're more likely to get a job with New Testament biblical studies than you are with, you know, carpal creations. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no I know this firsthand. Right. Uh, and and we did a hire right before I left at WashU for a uh, just a one-year position um, for classics and religious studies that was essentially a one-year position that was replacing me. Um, and I was on the search committee, and, you know, there are two classicists, two religious studies people. Well, I mean, I guess I was technically a classicist, but, you know, I was really on the religious studies right. uh, side of things. And when we got to the final, uh, final few candidates, there was definitely... Um, a, a clear difference of opinion about what's the most valuable thing the candidate needs to bring. Um, and, the, and the job, the person had to teach third semester Greek. They also had to teach my uh, course on ancient magic. And they had to teach intro to the New Testament in the fall. Uh, and, you know, classics and religious studies had very different views of what is, like, the most important thing the candidate needs to bring. Uh, and, and I have to give full credit to the classics department because uh, when Tim Moore, who's the chair of classics now, came, uh, there was just such a great and wonderful change in our department in that we, we were very a very closed, insular department before Tim. Uh, and Tim had you know really built bridges to other programs. Um, but, you know, the idea that no. Well, yes, you know, it's third semester Greek. They don't need to be a paparologist or, right. you know, uh, a philologist even necessarily to teach third semester Greek. But <laughs> not, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but you, you, you do need a certain amount of training to be to teach New Testament yeah, or at least sure. to teach, teach it well or teach it in a way that reflects the discipline. Yeah, uh, right. So. But so, that seem, that seems like a given, right? For a lot of oh yeah, of course yeah, anybody can teach New Testament, right? Yeah, okay. right, exactly. So, well, it's, it's the same way. It's the reason why I was gonna say it's the, it's the reason why New Testament Greek is so rarely taught in classics departments. Uh, the the yes. assumption is oh this is easy, this is koine, you know, there's nothing to teach here. Right. It's like well yeah maybe if you read John or Acts. Uh, and Acts seems to be the go-to for classicists when they teach New Testament because, oh, yeah, it's the right. ancient novel. I could do that. Right, exactly, uh, yeah. Historiography. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but I was lucky that I did get to teach uh, New Testament one semester, one semester at, uh, at WashU, and I taught Romans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know. Uh, I, I, I just put it all out there. Uh, but it was it was great because I was able to teach students like you know how do you use these lexica how do you use these commentaries um, you know how is Paul playing with cynic uh, diatribe you know yeah. things that right. Right. things that a classicist who hasn't had any training or has just you know kind of read the New Testament just won't know yeah uh, so it, it can be a great course it could be something very rigorous but. You know, you need people who are trained to do it to teach it. Okay, so I, I took three years of Attic Greek in college, mm -hmm. and I loved it, and it was fantastic. And then I got to, to Yale Div, and I, I did two years of 
Koine Greek and then a, did a year at with Thomas. But both of you, like when I when I read Koine Greek, especially like I mean, not necessarily New Testament stuff, but I mean, mostly New Testament, I guess. <laughs> like, do you? It's two different languages, you know. It's sort of like reading Shakespeare than reading Faulkner, you know, in a, in a lot of, a lot of ways. Which do you enjoy more? Or, or is I mean, is that a fair question to say? Like, you know, if you have to dive into a certain text, like, is there a kind of a, a field or, or a group of texts that you enjoy from that perspective more because i and, you know i think people listening to us kind of know the distinction between those two um and you know and a lot of times people conflate greek with oh the greek new testament so therefore the person that wrote john clearly was you know echoing homer it's like well you know it's a little bit of difference there yeah, yeah i mean right well john you know john's like the main example well, like, oh, look, like his Greek's great. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's like all he could muster was like right. half a chapter. And then it's like, okay, that was enough. Let's just go back to what I'm able to do. Um, <laughs> oh, poor John. So, John, you, you really hate John, don't you, Thomas? <laughs> yeah, I really do hate John. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a beautiful prologue, though. Give, oh, it is. No, the prologue's fantastic, except for the a, whole bit where it's split up, where it's like, oh, this was probably originally not actually about Jesus, right? Yeah, just, yeah about yeah. somebody else and so you break the flow but no the catch words and everything it's great yeah um i was gonna say so do you, you think that was an external uh source that was brought in i mean clearly yeah. well there's definitely to me there's definitely a you know literary seam there yeah. um because you have this great flow of the prologue it's very poetic and it has these catch words you know what you know um one clause will end with a word the next clause will start with it and you get this like just it just you know, stuns you kind of right in the middle, and it's like, oh yeah, but it, you know, we're talking about him, but it's not him, but it's him. But it, you know, it's like, wait, hold on, what? I don't it's, just keep it, going. It's kind of like a thirteen-year-old making a YouTube video and then like <laughs> taking part of the Star Wars intro, you know, with the with the scrolling text, yes, and putting yeah, their yeah. own text that's, that's into great, it. You know, that's a that's a great great comparison because yeah, there is a level of literary sophistication in the prologue that isn't found beyond the prologue. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So okay, so I don't I don't know um, how best to answer your question. I will say that in my experience, one of the things you get with reading Koine is you because okay. Here's the thing, right? It's one of the reasons that I don't think anybody should do like a New Testament dissertation anymore, but they're <laughs> they are. Um, but the fact that you your corpus is so small mm-hmm. that you just have to come up with new ways of thinking about it, reading it, understanding it. And so when it comes to new Testament Greek, these people for whom this is the literal word of God, right? They pour over this with everything they have. And so you get very, very technical ways of understanding the text and the language that's being used. But you also get, people that have tracked down all of these illusions and minor differences and how this word's used here as opposed to how it's used somewhere else. And so people have focused a lot on the actual language, the actual text in the New Testament. And then in my experience reading outside of the New Testament, it's often been you read it just to translate it and then move on. And there's not much beyond that. And I mean, sometimes there is, you know, we're trying to figure out about, locations or 
you know, this battle or, you know, what exactly did, did that cloak look like? How is he describing it? Um, but it's kind of not the same, you not the same depth that you're going to with the language there. Uh, but you do also have a difference. You know, there is a, there, there are different levels. I mean, very clearly, and one, you know, Koine is not like sitting down to read. Um, I don't know. You said you said Shakespeare. I, uh, I, I wouldn't say it like that, but um, well, yeah, I don't know. It, it with the Koine too, you can kind of you can kind of get at some of the like. It's maybe a little bit more human, like the kind of the, the humanity, a little bit just slightly, but a little less elite. I mean, it's still very elite, right? But fewer, a little fewer less. Fewer declensions. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah, there's a big difference between reading Koine and reading Origin or Eusebius, for example. Right. Yes. Uh, there's a bigger difference reading Koine and reading uh, Thucydides. Right. Uh, right. And in terms of pure enjoyment, if it was the choice between, okay, you have to spend the next month either reading Koine or reading Thucydides, I would go with Koine. Uh, just because. <laughs> uh, right. But in terms of, like, I, I can't say that I really have a preference. Uh, it's just it, my, my kind of inclination is just towards whatever I'm currently interested in. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in, in, I'm, I'm sure you all get this much more, you know, than the common person. But, there, you know, it, when you think about something from 700 B.C. E. to, you know, uh, a 100 BCE, so, like there's such a wide variety of yeah. language there that most people don't understand right. or get or, or want to think about. Well, you know, that's that's one of the interesting things about classics department. You have on one end people working with Homer, uh, looking at eighth or seventh or sixth, eighth or seventh century, ninth century, depending on how you decide on the dating. Yeah, so like ninth century BCE, and you have people working on. Usually you get to like Apuleius in the Latin tradition, about the second century CE. So right. you're looking at, no matter what, you're looking at over a millennia of, right. of, of literature, over a millennium, excuse me, my Latin just messed up there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forgive you. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just think that's that's so, you know, fascinating on a, a number of, you know, it's, a, it's right. sort of like when you say, okay, well, if you're going to conflate this, Think about where we were in England in the 900s. <laughs> you know, if, if you want to conflate, right. like, you know, the this part of biblical literature, like, mm-hmm. think about, you know, the, the Vikings are not going to uh, sail into London or you know sail into uh, Newcastle and, and invade right now. You know, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're conflating here if you're looking at this in Sunday school right. and saying, well, Amos is, was all about this, and it's like, well, that's not really. You know the the case in that point, but it, do, it does. Uh, um, we do have a tendency to kind of collapse it all together, right. and this is a point I try to make with my students and with other people I'm having these conversations with. Is that we as ancient historians have a tendency of, oh yeah, it's just like two centuries later that you have this happen, right? Right. And it's like, yeah. well, hold on, but think about where we were two centuries ago. Think about where we were, where our world was twenty five years ago. Yeah. Right. So. so if you think about that, there are massive changes that happen in a, re- in a very short period of time that we can lose complete sight of by talking about, okay, you had this, and then it was only two decades later that you have, Const- you know, you have the Edict of Milan or whatever from Constantine. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, 
there is the fact that technology is moving at a much, much, much more rapid rate than it was. So uh, I I don't think the comparison is quite the same. There's an element of it that I think we'll never really find out because, yeah, we could say, oh, two centuries after Alexander the Great, um, it was still, you know, Alexander's world. Um, there's, There's just too much missing, too much literature that's missing. But the literature we do have say, well, yeah, it is still Alexander's world because you know, there's a small, small group of people who are writing and they're all thinking about generally the same thing. Which which then and, – and you're right, right? This is this black hole that we're not going yeah. to be able to access. And, and I don't know if I had to put a number on it. We probably have 1%. Yeah. Maybe less than that of what existed. And we're writing these grand histories off of that, right? And the 1% that we have even is from generally some of the most elite people. Yeah. And so the histories that we write are are necessarily myopic, right? They're yeah. necessarily narrow. And we're writing histories of generally elite men. And so, you know, you think about all these other people that consistently get written out of our histories Mm -hmm. just because of one, the accidents of history, right? What doesn't Mm -hmm. happen to get preserved, right? Because they maybe these people weren't literate in the way that we think about literacy. And so they weren't writing their stories down. We have some receipts and we can, you know, dig through them. We can practice garbology, right? Dig through the trash (laughs) heaps and oxyrhynchus. Uh, There was a there was a really interesting talk at Naps on garbology, Um, but he dictated the the trash heaps, find the receipts and things like that and try to get some idea about kind of the um, the everyday lives of people. But but there is so much that is missing. And I I feel like we don't remind ourselves of that enough when we're making these kind of grand statements about the past. Well, yeah, like I I make the statement frequently that. Uh, starting around the 3rd or 4th century CE, anyone who was talking about Jesus was also talking about Apollonius of Tiano, or at least, you know, that he's on the he's on the mind of a good number of church fathers. But, come on, we're talking about, like, what, 0.1% of society right. uh, that was thinking about Apollonius of Tiana. Uh, probably a greater portion of society was thinking about Jesus at that time. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's the kind of myopic view we can get of, of antiquity just way too easily well it's it's like that old adage that you know cleopatra is closer to our current time than she was to the you know construction of khufu's pyramid you know or, or khafre's pyramid yeah. you know um but not only that so so i'm thinking about like star wars all right so so my my eight-year-old daughter is a big star wars fan and we went well to see done the- yeah, I know, right? I did well. So <laughs> we went to see the new uh, the new movie that came out last December on opening night, and she's there, and we're watching it. And I'm not going to spoil it, but there's this one scene. <laughs> I mean, it has been like eight months. Oh, I, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I think you can spoil it. All right, you know? so, so you can't, you can't really talk. Scene <laughs> where, yeah, yeah we this you know heroic sort of uh, character that we're going to call Han Solo. Uh, explains to these new characters, like, yes, it's all true, these things that you've heard. And they're like, wait, we thought that was legend, and that's only, you know, 30 years ago. So on all the subreddits I read, people are saying, oh, well, how could they forget that in 30 years? If, you know, there's no way, like, if, if, if you know, this is only 30 years removed from the, the acts of, of Luke Skywalker, 
and the Acts of Barnabas and Paul, you know, it, back in, in Return of the Jedi, then clearly they would have remembered that. And when we look back on the New Testament, think about, you know, kind of that transition history, because people like me would say, like, well, of course, you know, 30 years is a long time to forget things. Like, what were you doing 30 years ago today, you know, on, on this day? Like, what did you wear? You know, what was the number one song at the time? No, you're not going to remember, you know, what someone said to you in public. Um, you know, well, you know anyway, I, I just think that's such a fascinating kind of cultural point because my year old is like, well, how could they not remember that? And I was trying to explain that. And, but then I thought about the conversation that we're having now. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it's when you like it in the, in the realm of politics, I think it's even more easily seen. Um, yes. In, in that, so I, I happened to be watching Elizabeth Warren's 26, 20, well, I had looked for Elizabeth Warren's 2016 speech. <laughs> I accidentally found her 2012 speech and I listened to it. And I was like, Man, why is she talking about Mitt Romney? Uh, <laughs> then I go, oh, wait. Wrong. <laughs> I, I, no, I thought Romney was in the last election. Is, is she, uh, she forgets something? Or, uh, but when I found the 2016 speech and, and listened to it, I was like, this is exactly the same as her 2012 speech. Uh, and in 2012, she was making the case, you know, that about, against Romney and saying how the system is rigged. And Obama is fighting for you, and Obama's going to work to fix the system. Uh, and in 2016, she said the same thing, except you replace Obama with Clinton. Uh, and I think it's really easy to forget that, wait a minute, we've been promised this before by, you know, one of the big progressive uh, leaders of the Democratic Party. Uh, and it, And everyone was so upset at Elizabeth Warren for not, or at least let me rephrase, people on the progressive side, a lot of progressives were upset with her. But if you look at, I mean, like, did we forget that she gave the same speech for Obama? You know, when Obama, for, 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 you know, as far as progressives were concerned, wasn't really, you know, uh, meeting the muster. Uh, so, yeah, we forgot about that. And that was just four years ago. Uh, no, I think you're right. In politics, we have we have an especially short memory. Um, but you know, this is where it all comes together. Right? Um, now, the Library of Congress is archiving our tweets. Yes, yes. I <laughs> so, I mean, now we don't know if it will actually survive twenty years. 50 years, a couple hundred years. Um, you know, we have all these issues of the digital dark age that you know, yeah. Sam talks about occasionally. Um, all and the there time. has to be a way to, I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, you know, there's to be a way to access it. And then, of course, then, even when, if you have the data, there's the question of how, and this is kind of the large question that I deal with in my dissertation and basically everything I do these days when I, I mean, Sneetches, right? Dr. Seuss is the Sneetches. I talk about this. But it's, um, you know, how do we determine what is meaningful? Right. 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 So there's a, there's a great book by uh, Michel Rolf Troyo, uh, Haitian, um, and it's uh, Acts of Silencing the Past is what it is. Um, yeah, 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 I've heard of that. Right. Yes, yes. But so he's talking about um, kind of the problem of writing history. Even when you have the data, it's the choices that get made in deciding what counts as data for our history writing. Um, and so 
on the one hand, it's like, oh, this is great. We're going to have all this data, right? But at, at a certain point, we're going to have too much data, right? So right. you and I can lament we don't have nearly enough for the ancient world. But I think that future historians may have the exact opposite problem, have too much, and then also, again, still be conflating things down together. And so it's like, this is why theory is important, methodology is important, all of that. Exactly. Exactly. And not only conflation, but look at something like like the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Right? So so we put those gold records on these space probes. Mm Mm-hmm. And and Voyager One now is an interstellar craft. You know, it's the first thing that humans have ever sent out <laughs> beyond our solar system, and that's pretty amazing. But if you were to show the plaque on there that that we're trying to, uh, it, you know, that that we came up with in the seventies to say like, hey, we're humans, and this is a male human, this is a female human, and here's a record of all of our. Um, you know, great music and great sounds, and here's what it looks like and sounds like on Earth, and here's how to play this record. Okay. And then here are two hydrogen atoms, and in order to play this record, you have to know these two hydrogen atoms. Like, like we're assuming a whole lot about alien intelligence in terms of what they can see and what they can hear and understand. And, it, you know, it, it's kind of like that when you, when you look into the future, I think. You know, so, yes, we're creating all these great, uh, you know, Twitter archives and you know, I would say you know people who were who were writing on wax tablets, you know, in Pompeii and in sixty five A.D. were thinking the same thing. Like, well, clearly people are going to know about me because I'm writing on this wax tablet in sixty five A.D. And right, and here we are typing in a Google document that's in the freaking cloud, and it's going to go away. You know, and and right. we, we're. We're going to be looked at the same way, you know, 2,000 years from now. People are going to say, what were they thinking? Why didn't they write it down on paper? Why didn't they write it down on, you know, on, on, on uh, electrons or whatever? And um, anyway, it was, it's fascinating to, to think about that. There was a great uh, comic that kind of dealt with that issue. It was by Brian K. Vaughn uh, called The Private Eye. Uh, and the premise of the story was that it's about two generations into the future – at some point, the cloud bursted, and everyone's information was available everywhere. And because of that, you know, everyone is always in disguise, like literally, like wearing costumes and such, because no one wants anyone to know. Uh, and there's a character in the comic who's this guy's grandfather, who's you know a hipster from our generation. Uh, and, <laughs> and the interaction between him and his grandfather is hilarious. And it's like, yes, that's going to be us when we're at that age, you know, people are going to be looking at us like, why were you putting everything out there? Uh, why did you not keep anything secret? Did you yeah. not keep anything private? Uh, why would you put it in a place where anyone can get it at any time? Well, uh, yeah. And it, it's so impermanent, you know, and, and there's something to, you know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls because it was written on, you know, parchment and then included yeah. ink, you know, and we can still dig that up 2000 years from now. And I can't open up a zip file from 15 years ago <laughs> that I wrote in grad school. Right. You know, it's like, damn it. I, <laughs> you know, or I, a 3.5 inch. Of, yeah. Yeah. I found a box of three and a half inch discs when I was uh, visiting my parents. And yeah. <laughs> exactly. my whole, it had my undergraduate papers on it. And I was like, oh, what can I do with this? <laughs> it's like, let me Not go much. on eBay and find a, a three and a half inch floppy drive and then connect it to a SCSI adapter, connect to a, <laughs> something that hooks up to a USB port that I don't have on my Mac now because it's only USB C3, you know? And, 
right. It's a it's a strange so world. You're, so you're officially going on the record saying you think we should convert completely to papyrus and store <laughs> everything in dry, arid environments. No, because I, I'm sitting here in front of – I have an Ubuntu laptop, and I love Linux, and I have my Windows desktop that I'm recording on. I have an iPad, and I have my MacBook, and then I have my iPhone that I'm typing on. So I've got more screens than God. But So I, I'm all about the cloud because I'm able to you know, say, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm going to log into Google Docs, or I'm going to log into Gmail and get all my stuff there. Um, but, but when I think about things that are important, like photos or, or – you know, documents. Uh, I try to save important things, like in, in doc txt files, because I remember in the 1990s when I was a computer science major, I could open a dot txt file, and you still can, still can. <laughs> and and yes, I, I save those on zip drives. And unless I want to go on eBay and find a <laughs> with a scuzzy or whatever, like, but if I but if I can keep up with those moving to different computers, I'm going to be okay. And yeah. uh, but yeah, I, I really think I, I really think archaeologists are going to look at us, you know, in, in uh, you know five hundred years and say, "What were these people thinking? Like, why were they writing their receipts on these digital things instead of putting them on electron clouds or, or putting them in, in some kind of you know permanent situation?" And gosh, if if only we'd had David Koresh's original writings, <laughs> we would be so much closer to our Messiah. <laughs> well, I mean. You're pointing to something that I think New Testament scholars or historical Jesus scholars deal with a lot. You know, that transition of technologies, right? Yes. Going going from the oral tradition to the written tradition, uh, and the oral tradition is lost, right? It's in the it's in that cloud that bursted, uh, and we're kind of in that same mode where we have a very strong written tradition, but now we're creating a digital tradition. And what's going to survive in, well, two decades from now? I mean, the stuff I wrote two decades ago on the computer, I can't access anymore, so. Right, right. And it, well, yeah. so it is, you know, it's an, I, I like this this analogy uh, because it is kind of like a lot of what we're doing digitally now is the 21st century oral tradition. Right. right? Obviously, yeah, we can still talk to each other, but that's, you know, pretty passe now. But, um, but doing it digitally, right? So we have Snapchat, we have Instagram, you know, whole cloth copying Snapchat for their story feature, you know, so you can have your stuff that that shows up and then goes away and uh, you can, you know, talk on Yik Yak and nobody will know who you are. And so we do have this kind of new digital oral tradition, um, which I mean, is just- really rich, right? And and it doesn't and, – and the thing is you get things from the oral traditions you can't get from a written tradition, right? And things necessarily get lost, right, which mm-hmm. is what – you, you know, New Testament scholars um, are upset about, um, but I don't know. So it, it, I don't know. I like this analogy, this kind of new digital oral tradition that we have. That not everything, not everything has to be saved, mm-hmm. too. Right. And I think because everybody's kind of decrying, like you know, or they were for a while. Oh well, why would you want to take a picture that disappeared after twenty four hours? That doesn't make any sense. Well, why would you want to have a conversation with someone that wasn't recorded for all eternity? That doesn't make any sense, right? It's the same idea, right? That's there are some things for the here and now. No, uh, I I think so. No, no, you're you're all a (laughs) history bastards. This needs to be preserved. (laughs) We need to (laughs) think of the future classicist. 
<laughs> Every last piece of cake I've ever eaten must be preserved. In exactly. exactly. Put that pig bone into a, a pit around the fire so that, you know, 2,000 years from now, they'll know that we ate pigs that were very healthy. And these are the things we talked about with our Koresh-ite-ism. You know. Because otherwise, they're going to they're gonna find our Snapchats somehow and say, oh, my God. Like, they just liked exchanging pictures of their genitals. Like, that's not <laughs> – what was this culture thinking? This is like the Pompeii thing, you know? Let's right. go to Pompeii and see the, the, the pictures of the people's genitals, right? Well, you know, that, that uh, I'm sure the archaeologists of the future will come up with a much cl- more clever interpretation of it. It's like whenever they find a statue of someone with several mammaries – several breasts it's, it's, it's always oh this is a fertility god it's a right. fertility goddess right, right? you yeah. sure sure you know because yeah. guys haven't changed that much so, are you saying ephesus was kind of like the ancient 4chan yeah exactly yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah so so our snapchat activity is just um it's fertility rituals right exactly so that's exactly. that's another thing too is thinking about and and this is i think a really productive thought exercise for you know students that we have but also for other people as, as we're thinking about i mean i know roshan you and i both think the kind of role of the public intellectual is a really important role right. and thinking about what we can offer society right this training that we have this knowledge that we have and how we can help society better understand history and the present and all of these things um is is thinking about well how would you write history today like how would you write the history of your life today or of your week, right? And then how could this be interpreted otherwise? And then how might we be making some of those same mistakes when we're interpreting these things from a couple hundred years ago or a couple thousand years ago? And and these things that make sense to us, just that we don't have to think about, yes, okay, yeah, we can all identify who Pikachu is. Um, apparently 98% of the country can identify Pikachu and less than 70% of the country can identify Joe Biden. That's, this is the, this is the world that we live in, right? Is that true? But I I saw it on, uh, yeah, uh, Vox. It must be true. It was on the internet. It was on the internet. So so it's obviously true. (laughs) Right. But, but these kind of things that, that when we use these words, we, we use certain shorthands, which everyone does. That people generally get what we're what we're saying, and it's not spelled out. But then a historian comes 35, 50, 75, 100 years down the road and reads this, and they're like, "Okay, well, you know, it must mean this, and it must be connected to this other thing." And we might look at that and say, "Dude, you're completely off base, right?" right. It's it's like a parent reading their kid's text right. and trying to decipher it, and they live at the same time and in the same place. Um, and so I think that's it's a good kind of humbling thought exercise and so that we don't think that, yes, we are writing – we are telling the story of how the world really was. Right. And in fact, we can't even tell the story of ourselves because right. anytime – if you want to write the history of today for you, you're going to make editorial choices unconsciously at that. You know, right. The things you decide are irrelevant and that's just how – you know, our autobiographical memory works, that we have to make choices. We decide to forget certain things. We tr- decide to think of certain things as particularly important. And then we end up creating kind of a narrative of our life 
but there's another narrative there that we've chosen to forget, uh, possibly one that's completely and utterly mundane, like you know, teeth brushing habits. <laughs> uh, and I, I recently learned that apparently uh, the, everything they were telling you about flossing is a lie. I know. I saw that. It's like, come on. I just went to the dentist. They're like, you need to floss. Like, no, okay. yeah, yeah. You don't ever need to floss or brush your teeth. <laughs> yeah, never. It's all a lie. It's all a it's lie. All a lie. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, I mean, to, to assume that we could write someone else's history through an archive. You know, we have to have a certain amount of humility going, you know, this is this is just our stab at trying to piece something together. And even of recent people, I mean, we don't have everything that, for example, Martin Luther King ever writ, wrote or said. We have a lot, but, you know, we're always going to have a fragment of any history we write. Well, I wonder if we're going back to more of a, as we wrap up here, as we're going back to more of a oral culture, you know, visual sort of, you know, we're not reliant on the physical word in order mm-hmm. to convey messaging anymore. You know, so for, you know, uh, for most of the, the later, you know, quote, enlightenment up, up until, you know, broadcast media in the 1840s until today, you know, the written word had such a sway over us and... You know, for for much of human history, that that's an aberration you know, of of something right. like written word having that much importance in stained glass windows. Um, you know, but but narrative and, and telling stories and the, the flexibility of stories and realizing that, you know, yeah, we have four gospels because Jesus is different in each of those, and that's okay, and they don't get along, mm-hmm. and you know, and they say different things, but that's not the point, and, and that's not the historicity of the point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and. and being able to say like it, it, it's not a you don't have to be a literalist and you don't have to say every word is true uh, mm-hmm. in order to believe in something it, it's so alien to some parts of our society but I, I really feel like things like Snapchat and, and the web and, and this current I don't know push towards um, whatever we're heading to like really feels like we're, we're getting away from some of that kind of textuality okay. of, of okay. authority right and uh, I think Things like Facebook Live, uh, Periscope, and, all, and particularly in uh, recent stories of police violence against uh, Black Americans, you know those those yeah, videos exactly, are exactly. in so many so many ways much more important and much more reliable than the written word, because the written word is a is a narrative that's controlled by you know the police department. Right, uh, right. It's, it's not that those things happen less. Right. It's just that now we have Periscope, we have Facebook Live, we have right. Snapchat. We can we can get those things out in real time. We have Twitter, where I can mm-hmm. sit here and watch you know something unfold, and then twenty minutes later it shows up on CNN. Right. And they're just reading right. tweets. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> right. I don't need you to do that. Right. I, I've got my own access. Yeah. Well, it's 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 one of the reasons I think the millennials are much more intelligent and much more informed than the mainstream media gives them credit for. Because, you know, yeah, they're on Twitter all the time. They know everything that's happening. They Google anything you ask, they see. Uh, Not saying everyone does it as well as the next person. Not saying that everything you find is as reliable as the next thing. But because of this kind of uh, digital revolution, the, the, the kids who grew up with this, 
you know, are accessing information uh, and essentially fact-checking or getting them, keeping themselves informed at a rate that, you know, the baby boomers really just can't. And never even yeah. thought about. Exactly, exactly. Right, because you had Dan Rather or you had the, the, the New York Times or you had right. the, the local newspaper. I mean, God, yeah, I was today, you know, on, on vacation with my my uh, uh, family, my my wife's um, parents, and we were having a conversation. And he was like, yeah, I didn't see that in our paper. <laughs> I was like, well, well, I can send you a link, <laughs> you know, and you have an iPad. <laughs> like, right. I'm well, sorry you didn't say that, see that in the paper, but – that that's not authoritative. Yeah. Well, I I, I know we're running out of time here, but uh, I think the DNC is a good example of if you just watch MSNBC or mainstream media, you got a very different picture of what was going on at the DNC versus if you are you know following people on Twitter on social media, seeing the things people were live streaming. Uh, you know the the. The mainstream media version of the DNC was very sanitized, very like, yes, we're all unified now and we're all coming together. Uh, and when you're on you know, the new media uh, or just you know, the social media, you, you find out that there was an incredible amount of dissent uh, that was being shut down and covered up. And, and I, I don't mean cover up in like a conspiratorial way, but just something like, you know, hidden. So, I mean, so did you have access to that? Like, were you watching that descent or that that sort of uh, uproar? I was, yeah, I was. I was keeping track of that while uh, the speeches were going on. Um, and I have to admit that there were several speeches I didn't listen to uh, because I found the other things that were happening more interesting. Uh, for example, like the fact that. Was it like 70 super volunteers or is it 80 super volunteers? Like each campaign has a group of volunteers who do so much work that they they get the super volunteer label and they get tickets and credentials to go to the DNC. But all of Bernie Sanders' super volunteers lost their credentials. So none of them were able to go. None of them were able to enter. Um, things like that, you know. Um, or the, the walkout where several hundred Bernie delegates walked out and they went to the media media tent. Right, it was all over Twitter, but that was about the only place. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's like they were in the media tent. And, you know, I I read reports of people saying, yeah, this this guy over here from ABC News is annoyed that he can't go watch whoever's speaking. I was like, no, the news is happening right in front of you. Uh, But, yeah. I mean, do you think or, I mean, do people think that was deliberate to kind of squash the, the uh, you know, kind of oh, yeah. the, the pro-Bernie voice, uh, voices, right? Yeah, I, th- I think it was. And, I mean, there, there was the, the text that went out that got passed around on social media quite a bit. Uh, the message that was sent to the non-Bernie people saying, okay, if the Bernie people chant this, your right. response is to chant this. Um, and and so, like, when you're watching Hillary Clinton's speech, there was a lot of moments of Hillary, Hillary. And if you don't have any of the other contexts, 
if you just have what mainstream media is giving you, you think, wow, people are really jazzed up for Hillary right, Clinton. It's just like spontaneous outburst. Exactly. Yeah, and it was awkward because it was in the <laughs> – I'm not trying to lead the witness, but it was in the middle of uh, her you know, speaking about something kind of not, – not boring, but not something that would, would elicit a, a chant of Hillary, Hillary, Hillary or right. – Yes, we stand together or whatever that, you know, the other chants were about the TPP or whatever. Right. And, uh, yeah, you you could tell, like, something was going on, but we couldn't hear that. And she was was looking and talking to the camera. Right. She wasn't talking to the convention floor. Right. And uh, I think that this is something, I mean, like, when I watched the DNC, I, 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 I had very, very mixed feelings about what was going on uh, on stage. Um, but I, it does seem like the pivot, there's, there's kind of a, kind of a consensus amongst the establishment that like, you know, we don't need the progressives. We don't, we're, you know, we'll, we'll throw, we'll say a few things, but we're actually trying to get the disaffected Republicans. You know, that's right. why you have so many Republicans speaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, but they don't need the, con- the, the progressives. I mean, who are you going to vote for? I mean, are, well, you're going to vote for Bernie? Like, good luck. Like, it's, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get what you're saying. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the people who followed or came to Bernie, they came to him because of policy. Uh, there was no real, there's not really a cult of personality. I mean, he never, every one of his speeches, which I, I watched several of, he kept saying, look, I can't do any of this by myself. I need you guys uh, to... You know, be on the streets, be you know, running for local office. Uh, you know, there was a narrative that came through on mainstream media that oh, these are just a bunch of lazy millennials who just want things for free. It's like no, that's not that's not at all the message. Well, but uh, how would you answer the the mm-hmm. sort of the I guess the mm-hmm. my puppies. <laughs> Hello, Waylon. I have a great Dane, and he's scratching his ear right beside the microphone. <laughs> uh, how would you answer the the charge against? Like like people like Thomas who said mm-hmm. the Bernie Bros, which became you know this kind of conflated I I, I think uh, imaginary group, mm-hmm. and I, I I'll give a caveat I'm not a Hillary or Bernie supporter but mm-hmm. I definitely did not want Hillary to win the nomination. <laughs> How would you say like um you know the the, the Bernie Bros wanted to just you know, watch the role burn, but they weren't really, I'm not saying Thomas said this, but they weren't really Democrats, you know, mm-hmm. because, because Bernie is not a Democrat mm-hmm. and, you know, how dare he run for, for mm-hmm. this position and, and mm-hmm. be a Democrat. Right. Um, so on one hand, yeah, Bernie wasn't a Democrat, but he caucused with the Democrats. Everything he did was with the Democrats. Uh, they, the Democrats relied on him you know, they gave him, uh, like essentially membership into party, uh, but you know the the thing I wonder is, so yeah, a lot of his supporters are not Democrats, and now fewer of his supporters are Democrats. With a lot of people doing the whole Dem exit. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that's yeah. what I was going to say, right? Dem exit. Yeah. I think it's going to be a major impact. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, we'll see, um, but. I don't understand why you would want to say, oh, yeah, all these people aren't Democrats. We don't want them. It's like, no, these these are the young people who are 
enthusiastic, energetic. You, you should want them. You should be welcoming them in. I think and the you, idea you win a generation that way too. Exactly, exactly. Because I'm I'm sorry, you know, uh, no no young generation is going. Man, we need some more supply side economics. That, that <laughs> supply side is hot. Right. <laughs> But uh, and that's and that's why Hillary's people I think are focusing on things like Instagram, Snapchat, and doing really well at those. But yeah, you know, it, it lacks authenticity. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's that 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 point, and if it keeps on going, it's going to get to. I mean, three months is a long time for a lot of people. Yeah, and authenticity can can shine through in in a lot quicker time frame than three right. months. Right. Did Did you guys see the Vine? Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, just chilling in Cedar Rapids. <laughs> no, God, I didn't see no. that one. Please okay, God, well, no. Please go uh, ahead. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll give it to you so you can put it in the show notes. For Please. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, there is a lack of authenticity uh, with Hillary. And well, you know, actually, I, I'm, I'm of two minds with this, you know, because you have to give Hillary credit in that I mean, she's done something pretty amazing. I mean, she I mean, going back to when she was first lady. I mean, we hadn't had a first lady who was such an aggressive member of the executive branch, you know, prior to her in, in, in quite some time. We had just say no with Nancy Reagan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. That kept me off of the marijuana. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, but yeah, really. so I mean, yeah. and, and, and she, she comes off as inauthentic uh, to millennials, but when she was kind of coming up in the political world, I mean, she had to be that way. You know, she had to not come off as emotional, you know, and to seem like a calm, cool, steady politician. Uh, so that's, that's in a sense, she is being authentic when she's being like that because that's who, that's who she has become because, you know, well, that's, that's what she had to do uh, to be a successful politician. Uh, Right, and there's a lot tied up in this that deals with um, public expectations of you know certain leaders, especially mm-hmm. political leaders, public expectations of women, right, and all these things that that she is dealing with and grappling with and has been that say, obviously Bernie Sanders didn't have to, right? Right. There was never a question about oh who is Bernie wearing tonight, right? right. Or right. or man, why couldn't Bernie fix his hair before he? Came oh, out? I, oh like, come on, come on, that, that's not fair, Thomas. I mean, there were lots of times when people said, "Look at the old angry white man," or "We're going to compare him to uh, what's his name from uh, Seinfeld," or, or uh, uh, what's his Kirby name? Jason. Yeah, you know, like like oh, come David, on. Yeah. I mean, there was yeah. there was a lot of ageism and old white manism right. there. I mean, and I'm not right. sticking up for the old white males because they ruin our country. But <laughs> yeah. you know, but but I don't want to go that far to say that yeah. Hillary well, had to fight against certain things that he well. Always I did. mean, Hillary Bernie never had to be called shrill. Sure, sure. For example. Uh, well, so there's that. Well, but maybe. but yeah. I, well, yeah. Uh, I think one of the mistakes the Clinton campaign did was. Anytime Bernie would say anything, they'd be like, you're a sexist. You know, they, yeah, they right. accused him of sexism for the most innocuous things. And now they're facing this monster. Right, right. You know? They, they, they de- sort of desensitized us to yeah. real sexism and misogyny. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Trump is a misogynist. Like, there's no yeah, way around a, it. He's a misogynist. He's a racist. He's, I mean, right. all, 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 the only thing he believes in is Trump. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I, so, just, just that, that yeah, image of him so walking on was... stage with, with the uh, the Trump in gold letters above the gold yeah, yeah. platform at the RNC. I mean, that was like, wow, okay, here we are. Yeah, yeah, that was that was unreal. Um, but yeah, so I, I think throughout the whole primary season, uh, Bernie Sanders and the Bernie Sanders supporters were uh, constantly being discredited and attacked by the establishment. Uh and obviously, the emails prove that it was, in some sense, a concerted effort. Uh, so, so I mean, I, I can understand why a lot of millennials, a lot of young people—it's not just millennials. I mean, Bernie's coalition is is pretty, pretty uh, diverse, more diverse than uh, you would think uh, from media coverage. Uh, but yeah, it's like, well, you guys were just abusing us for the last six months or last eight months, you know, why do we want to suddenly support your candidate when all we got really was a platform, a non-binding platform? Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, and, and Hillary, I mean, like, I think there's a couple of things she could have done that uh, would have sold her to more progressives. Uh, for example, I mean, I think she could have. I mean, I, I think she, there's a sense that you know you can't apologize for anything in po- politics. But I, th- I think she could have. She could have said, you know, we saw the emails, we saw the, what happened. I'm very upset about this, and I apologize that this happened. Uh, but now let's, you know, come together. Or if she had like tied some of the issues to her legacy, saying like, you know, if I, if I don't overturn Citizens United in the four years I'm elected, then uh, I will have failed as a pe- as a president, you know, because I mean, presidents, I mean, they don't say things like that. Right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and there's a reason. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, or, you know, I think I think the, the biggest one that would have won, I think, everyone over is if, if she said something like, you know, Bernie Sanders taught me that I don't need to rely on Wall Street money. That I could rely on you guys. So after this convention's over, you know, I'm only going to take money from you guys. And, and the thing about that is, you know, they already have a pretty huge war chest, so it's not like they need more money. But it gives, it does give a, a kind of a sense of like true progressive value, as opposed to the, you know, oh, I'm a progressive who gets things done, which I, I have no idea what that means. Uh, aside from, yeah, I compromise and get things that aren't progressive passed. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so we need to, um, we do need to wrap up, but we yeah. need to have you on again and, oh, yeah. um, and talk more about this because I think it's really interesting because our listeners hear Sam and I a lot. Um, and you certainly bring a different perspective to the table. We were talking about this a little bit in the, in the pre-show, that I was like, no, I'm I'm definitely left to Bernie, and Russian was like, really? So, <laughs> so I think I I think that it'd be interesting to talk about because, you know, kind of how we approach politics, right, mm-hmm. and and our own personal, you know, policy stances or whatever you want to call them or or views and how they play into that and how we approach it from a practical standpoint or an idealistic standpoint or a pushing other people or whatever. I, I think it would be um, a really, a really great conversation because you definitely bring something to the table that, that Sam and I don't. Um, and I think our, 
our listeners would would enjoy that. And we did, um, you know, Sam will remember this, but we did leading up to the 2012 election, a, a thinking politics series mm. with me and a friend of mine who was a Republican. And, um, you know, the traditional, you know, what you expect from one of those type shows, you know, one person on either side. Uh, but I, I think that's good. Um, there are, I think, big things to come, and, <laughs> um, and 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 right, and he's he's staking his legacy on that. Yes, <laughs> right, I, uh, right now. Yeah, I, I will have failed as a. Well, I, actually, I don't have a title anymore, so <laughs> right. I will have failed as a Roshan Abraham. Exactly, uh, <laughs> big things don't come. <laughs> So, um, as always, you can follow me and Sam on Twitter at Thomas Whitley and at Sam Harrelson, and you can find Roshan at. How do you do? You say your Twitter handle like Roshabra. You know, I've never had to tell anyone my t- Twitter handle. <laughs> okay, uh, <but> so <laughs> so it's um it's the first four letters of uh, his first and last name R O S H A B R A. We'll drop a link down in the show notes there, uh, yeah. so that you can you can click on that and follow him, and he will hopefully get a lot of followers because he's definitely worth it, particularly um, during this political season. I mean, if if you're not tired of Sam and I at this point <laughs> talking about politics, you're definitely not going to be uh, tired of listening to Roche and talk about it on Twitter. And, and he has a lot of great insight there. So uh, okay. thank you again for coming on. Oh, thank, you really, thank you guys. Thank you guys for having appreciate. me. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you that, was, that was awesome. Willie, Willie yeah. Nelson for president. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so follow us all on twitter at thomas whitley at sam harrelson at roche abra and you can always find more great podcasts at thinking.fm